Welcome to Any Honey and the Newt. Today's episode is going to continue our series theme of love and relationships and starting with the relationships found in, in NBA basketball. We're looking today at the relationship of players to their organizations, to their teams, and to their management. A quick question as we get into this conversation, because originally I was thinking about organizations as being like front offices um, and the ownership, which we've talked a little bit about in the past. And there's one dynamic that I hadn't considered until literally just this second, which was including coaches in that organizational type role. Do you agree with that? Yeah, yeah. I, I was hoping we'd talk about that. Perfect. Um, in our last episode, when we talked about the player-player relations, I actually sort of alluded to this. I might have directly mentioned it. Um, but when we talked about, you know, that, that positive or negative aspect of the player-player relations and them being able to do more for each other or want to do less for each other, uh, I find that it's most uh, most tangibleized with the organization through the coach. You know, you get a good coach on a team and the players want to do everything for that coach. Um, and that relationship has some of the same layers that the that the player-player relationship has, you know, friendship, uh, professionalism. Um, but on the flip side, right, if you get a bad coach and the chemistry is just not there, which we dissected, um, then, you know, all of that negativity permeates through the culture as well. So it doesn't just happen with the players amongst themselves. It can also happen with the coach, I think. I, I'm interested in the fact that maybe some players gel well and see the coach's vision and appreciate the plan and maybe others don't so there could be a split on the team among players about what they think about the coach and about their system maybe there's a coach that inspires a lot of loyalty from everybody and then maybe there's a situation like the bulls when uh, jim boylan basically would would make them do extra conditioning and and punish them with extra practices when they performed poorly and the players were like we we can't stand this guy they had their little team meeting and and uh, expressed frustration to the organization like this is this isn't working for us. So there's a unified front against the coach. So all three of those kind of scenarios, I'm, I'm curious, uh, what do you think the impact is, and what can a coach do to to foster the best relationships possible? Yeah, that's interesting because you hear all the time of. Um, not just their coaching philosophy, but essentially their philosophy with regards to player management. Um, so you think of like the player coaches like Doc Rivers, who becomes really, I guess I would say he's more than personable with them. He's uh, friends with with a lot of them, or at least, you know, whatever whatever mentorship type of role he applies to his teams, right? So the players like playing for them, for him, um, because maybe he gives them a little bit of extra leeway. Uh, he expects some things to happen professionally, but when they meet those expectations, then he gives them a lot more. Um, at the same time, you have those like militaristic coaches like Boylan that you mentioned. And uh, I'll break into football a little bit. Tom Coughlin, 
from the New York Giants was this like militaristic style coach where, you know, it's all about the conditioning and it's all about the drills and it's all about the execution. And even if you meet all the expectations, you're just expected to do more. And there's really no, uh, there's no person there. That person might as well be replaced with a machine and you get the same kind of outcomes. Um, mm. Are there any other coaching ideologies that you can think of that I'm missing? Uh, well, I, I don't know if I've thought through all the different types, but I think of like a Steve Kerr kind of coach who really does take on the mentorship kind of role. He he identifies what the player's strengths are, but it seems like he's more about um, engaging particular aspects of the game rather than rather than play calling and not necessarily player management. Like it doesn't seem like he's going to either extreme. It's more of a, how can I help you as a player see how this situation could have been different, handled differently or whatever. Uh, so that's, that's one example. Yeah. I find that the, the coaches who apply mentorship um, have the most success and there's lots of different layers to the mentorship, right? There's like the developmental coaches who focus on the growth of players. There's the, uh, the coaches who um, who help the players in other aspects, not just on the court, but in their the, the other aspects of their lives, you know, whether it's financially or family or health, uh, that sort of relationship. There's, you know, everywhere in between. And these types of mentors, um, I don't, we don't typically hear about them a lot outside of the coaching staff. And I'm, I'm going to include assistants and developmental coaches into this as well, because the players certainly do develop relationships with these guys because they're next to them literally every day. Um, sometimes you hear about it with GMs, um, but you don't really hear about that very frequently. And I would say very rarely do you hear about these kinds of relationships with the ownership. The only owner I can think of that this would apply to is uh, Mark Cuban. Mm. maybe pat riley oh he's not an owner though <laughs> yeah that's interesting i uh i was definitely wanting to expand i'm glad you mentioned the assistant coaches because i definitely think there's a lot of relationship that's there and and mentorship like you're spending a lot of time maybe with the bigs or with players developing a particular talent also the training staff and, and all of the people involved with that they spend a lot of time with these players getting to know their personal regimen and, and trying to help them improve individually uh, as well as bringing the team together. And so, you know, these players have to be developing all kinds of, of pretty close ties and relationships while they're with an organization. And so one of the curious things is, is in our very first episode ever, we talked about the NBA is a business and the fact that players can get traded on at any time or now that with power, player empowerment, we talk about free agency. So how do these uh, relationships with trainers, staff, coaches, other players, and this transience of moving from organiza organization to organization, what's the interplay between those two things? That's really interesting the thing that I think about is I feel like there's this like this uh, barrier that players can put up or that coaches can kind of assume, which is that 
while we are part of management and the organization, right, we're not the ones who trade you. And so whether you, you know, we're here to help you grow and learn and get into the system and win. Um, but when the training, the trading happens, that's on those guys over there. So I feel like the players can get closer or at least uh, mentally can allow themselves to get closer to the coaching staff than they might uh, the GMs or the the president of basketball operations, the upper management kind of stuff. And maybe they do get to know them. I can think of a couple of instances, um, but uh, ownership too. But I feel like, you know, maybe it's a, just a perception because, you know, because those trades happen and you sort of have to like, um, maybe, maybe actually, honestly, maybe the players are really in tune with this and they understand that these are people who run the, the business so I'm going to have professional relationships with them all and I can become more than professional friends, you know, work, work buddies with all these people. Uh, but at the same time, like you said, the NBA is a business. So if I get traded, maybe they all understand it's no hard feelings, but uh, there are definitely instances where there are in fact hard feelings. Yeah. Let's talk to Isaiah Thomas about that. <laughs> um yeah, no, I think also we have to distinguish between different tiers of players, unfortunately, uh, because in this day and age of player empowerment, you hear frequently, like, did management consult the superstars on this team about whether they were okay with this move? Like, they're looking out to go get a free agent or to draft a rookie or to offer an extension. And did they, and they consulted the superstars? Well, they're not consulting the 10th, 11th, 12th guy on the bench, right? Like they only really care about their franchise players. And if, if they're on the out and outs with those franchise players, maybe they won't even consult them then. But so there's probably personal relationships that happen for some of the higher tier players with, with organizational management, like that probably does happen. Uh, And how does that impact and influence their relationship with other players that don't have that relationship and maybe feel like they have less of a say. Uh, how does that impact their relationship with the coaches? Since maybe what they tell management can undermine a coach's strategy or, or game plan. Um, so I'll, I'll leave that and toss that out to you. And then I have some other thoughts about the, the other tier of players. Yeah. Uh, real quick. We saw that happen this past summer with the Rockets, right? Um, when Daryl Morey left and he went to the Sixers. They, I mean, basically the floodgates opened and all this information came out that the Rockets were treating Harden with gold gloves, you know, silk gloves, I should say. I guess that's the phrase. And doing whatever it was that he wanted. And it sounded like Daryl Morey had a really good relationship with Harden. I'm not sure what the extent of it is, but enough so that he's trying to trade for him to bring him to the Sixers as we speak. Um, so there is that layer of, you know, elevating the relationship beyond professionalism and maybe Moray just thinks the world of Harden's game style and at the same time as soon as Moray left uh, the Rockets took the gloves off and they're like we're not doing anything you say from here on out you got to report to the team you're not allowed to just party all night in Vegas Um, you're going to play and we're going to trade you when we trade you yeah so I'm just curious how that uh I mean, obviously, we're seeing how it plays in in Houston, but that also seems like that was a mess to begin with. <laughs> I wonder in other situations. Um, 
Minnesota, that seems like a good place to, as an example, right? You've got Carl Anthony Towns, and it's not really clear what his relationship is with management. I would imagine that the market that they're in and how difficult it is for them to attract free agents, they're doing everything they can to keep him there, including team construction and contracts and that kind of stuff. Um, so what do they do to foster that relationship? Is it merely professional consultation or do they have to do the wine and dine or maybe just because that they've had many interactions with him, do they develop a relationship? I'm glad you brought up the Timberwolves, which I hadn't thought of. And just uh, dialing back the clock a little bit, you just go before Towns, right? His predecessor, Kevin Garnett. Uh, well, I guess his predecessor was Kevin Love, but the predecessor before that, the other Kevin, Kevin Garnett, he had this one aspect about him that I think won him favor. And I, you know, you read interviews about Kevin Garnett now, and he talks about how much he loves the Wolves owner ownership, how much he loves the front office there, how much he loves the city. And I think that that one thing is this concept of loyalty. It's kind of like the opposite, essentially, of the NBA as a business where people can get traded all willy-nilly. I think when the when a, a team sees that a player has this loyalty to them, they maybe want to invest a little more into that. Now, as soon as they... I think we've seen this more often than not. As soon as there's uh, some chink in that armor, they toss them aside as quickly as possible in that trade thing. Um, but I think that we're starting to see these dynamics that you're referring to here. I wonder if that's, I just wonder if we can generalize across all the teams in the NBA. I feel like we saw in Dallas, Mark Cuban and Dirk Nowitzki had this amazing relationship and Dirk wanted to stay with Dallas and Dallas wanted to make Dirk happy. And it seemed mutual. It didn't seem like one of them bribed the other or, or how the other, um, you know, extorted the other. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you've got like Danny Ainge in Boston who doesn't care where you're at on the team. Like if I find a, a deal that's advantageous for me, goodbye. Um, and, and, you know, we saw that when he got rid of the, the Garnett and Paul Pierce to the Brooklyn Nets. Oh, my interpretation of that was it was like a mutual decision. I, I have heard that they kind of came along to like understand the benefits of, of that trade for them as well. But I, I mean, I think Paul Pierce had this real strong loyalty. I mean, he was there before the big three and I think envisioned finishing his career out in Boston. Well, I know that he had the strong loyalty of being in Boston. Uh, but I thought that they, because I remember there being rumors of Garnett and Pierce wanting to play for the Nets. And then Ainge made that trade happen and got literally everything <laughs> out of that trade. Um, but at the same time, um, you know, there's instances, like you said, of players being traded even when there's loyalty involved. And I think it makes it harder, but there's only a few instances of those loyalty ties being so thick. And then I'm going to say that management's the one that that breaks the trust in that loyalty connection. Um, a few t- few instances of that trust. I think of Isaiah Thomas with the Celtics, not not the Isaiah Thomas, the little Isaiah Thomas uh, with the Celtics as that one thing. Um, you know, LeBron was the the trust breaker in that loyalty of the Cavs. 
Yeah. I mean, I think it does happen in both directions. Probably it has traditionally been more management's decision to make. And so loyalty has only ever felt one, one directional until recent years. So um, I think I'm glad it's becoming more equal. I want to go back to something you said earlier, because it's been, I've been thinking about this. You mentioned about how the players get to know the, the trainers and the coaches and assistants and everything and they're they see management as up there, the business interests and the business is their decision. But I, I wonder if that's true, especially for the lower tier players where they don't have as much sway um, with the organization and they're not, the game isn't being built around them. Like, I wonder if there's any, uh, if they hold ca- coaches, when I say accountable, it's not like they can do anything about it, but if they re- resent or, blame coaches for not giving them enough playing time or using them in a way that doesn't they don't think is their best way to be used right like you're hurting my career you're hurting my money making opportunities i'm curious about how those game planning strategies and decisions affect the interpersonal relationships Um, i remember larry brown when he was with the knicks he's a really interesting case because when you know just the very year before he had a eastern conference finals Actually, I think they won the championship the year before he went to the Knicks with the Pistons. And uh, those players talked about doing anything for Larry Brown because, you know, obviously he got them to the promised land, but, you know, they had really great team chemistry and it seemed like everybody, the coaching staff and the players were all in harmony. He goes to the Knicks and it's like a total disaster. Um, Mm. Players talking about, having you know not having consistent rotations um the the things that they're being told to do Channing Fry actually just did an interview with on this like a month ago where he was like he got drafted because he was a jumpsuiting power forward center and you know he goes out and he has like a 30 point game and the very next day Larry Brown comes to him and he says like don't don't shoot those jumpers you know turn your back to the basket and back a guy down and Channing Fry is like that's not my game at all. And all the his teammates are like, he just scored 30 playing his game. Why are you forcing him to do something he's not capable of right now? I, I don't have any like solid examples, but I was thinking about the way that Eric Bledsoe was used with the Clippers and then the Suns and then the Bucks and like the different roles that he's played and how much of of a say he felt he had like especially when he was on the Phoenix Suns and they had like three starting quality point guards Mm -hmm. uh goran dragic and isaiah thomas and him and i can't remember who they they had a fourth point guard like it was ridiculous how many people they had in one spot um or something like i was hearing about sadaransky when he was playing with the wizards how scott brooks refused to play a six foot seven guy at the point guard even though that was a position he had grown up playing and played in college or whatever or i guess in europe um and now he's with chicago and he's like performing way better because he's finally going back to a position he's familiar with. Whereas Scott Brooks was like, you're six foot seven. You're there for a wing. We're going to play you wing style. We're going to play traditional. And I wonder if Sadoransky hadn't spent, I, I think it's four years, three or four years with the wizards kind of stagnating in a position that wasn't, wasn't his fit. Um, could he have had a different career? Could he be a, a sought after? I mean, nowadays a six seven point guard is starting to become the norm right so he could have been on that front edge of of that and now instead he's like a backup 
player or whatever. Right. Yeah. You talk about um, decision making. You know, we've talked about decision making amongst the players on the court all the time, but there's decisions that have to be made. You know, from the GM's perspective, who to trade, who not to trade from the coaches, who to play, who not to play, and in what situations you play them, and the players, right? They, We've talked about those decisions all the time. and But we've never talked about how detrimental a bad decision could be. And, you know, we've talked about these different layers with the GMs and with the coaching staff, right? You, tr- you pick the wrong player to trade. You destroy the chemistry of the team. Maybe somebody was like especially loved in the locker room. Now they're gone and everyone's like crushed. And, you know, maybe that was that was just a, a kind of a superficial feeling, but you know, that being defeated because you really love that guy and everybody loved that guy, that has like real effects. It looked like you were gonna say something. Uh well, all I was gonna say is I can't remember the example. I actually heard that a week ago where somebody, a veteran who was a bench player and didn't spend a lot of time on the floor. But when he got traded to try and make some salary stuff work out in another trade, the team said that was our, he was our core. Like you just took our heart away from us and they, they performed much worse without him. So yeah, I, there is an actual example of what you were just saying. I just can't remember what player it was. I want to take a, a moment to um, just kind of pull out a little bit and say, we've spent several episodes now talking about basketball and relationships and, uh, uh, love of the game, chemistry with other players, relationships with coaches as mentors or with the organization. I really uh, want to kind of set the stage for the rest of the season of our podcast and, and talking about like relationships. We There are a lot of different complex relations that, that we may not be able to spell out all the, the factors and, and components of, right? But we've identified several principles i think it'll be interesting to just explore how they apply in society at large so things like loyalty what do we mean by loyalty uh is loyalty a good thing things like chemistry and camaraderie uh do those help pursue practical projects and and social functions or is that merely like an aesthetic i i'm pleased to have that kind of camaraderie with other people uh and and other kinds of relationships so i just wanted to kind of pull back and use some of the things that we've talked about in in these past few episodes to set the stage for relationships. Yeah, I think that's really good. Uh, You know, luckily most of us don't have to worry about being traded from our day job, but (laughs) (laughs) that's not to say that these decisions that affect, uh, you know, your, your work life or your home life, they don't have at least analogous sorts of impacts. Right. And the one of the reasons why I found, um, basketball you know this conversation about basketball so compelling was when you think about it beyond just like you know that these are guys playing a game or women playing a game uh that that these same things this is what you know why i started getting interested in basketball in the first place these same things happen in our own personal lives right the players have friends they have their friends they have their family they have the friendships that they have on the court right and all of those things are relationships. And relationships can be a lot of different things to a lot of different people. And I think it's just really interesting the dynamics that you can have uh, with all of these different relationships. Yeah, and I think it's interesting to to think about these teams as as miniature societies or, or communities. And 
maybe the analogy does fit real, you know, tightly, but we can see or explore kind of questions of collective decision making or responding to hierarchies in society and things like that by by looking at team dynamics. And then also to think about the NBA as a league uh, and as an institution. So how do players interact with players from other teams and how do uh, managers relate with one another and, and relate to the fans, you know, the the as customers or as proponents of, of their cause? Like all these kinds of relationships, I think, open up interesting questions about how we relate to our local neighborhood, to uh, maybe a larger impersonal infrastructure like government or um, you know capitalism whatever structure you want to talk about versus also the interpersonal like the people that i live with or my family members right so there are a lot of different dynamics at a lot of different levels yeah one thing that i want to bring up uh before we wrap this up is and this applies in a lot of different senses is one thing that i've kind of been learning is that the key to successful relationships is remembering that those things, those relationships are dependent on people, right? Uh, and a lot of times we, we kind of get into our own heads and when we start thinking about the, the other thing on the end of the relationship as more of an asset, you know, I think of with the players, right? Uh, the NBA is a business. Basically what happens there is like the players get traded and the media portrays them as just assets to the team, um, you know, which tells one story and the players may buy into that. Right. But I think that the, the coaches and the GMs and the players who are most successful, they understand that they're not just assets or that they're not just tools for the job, but that they are people. And going back to that Channing Fry interview, I remember he told this one part about um, Isaiah, Isaiah Thomas, the Isaiah Thomas, not little one, uh, coming to him and saying, hey, you know, you're being traded to the Blazers. Um, and I really think that Nate McMillan is going to be a great coach for you. And he basically sat there and like listed all, all the reasons why Nate McMillan was going was gonna to be helpful. And I think like despite all of Isaiah Thomas's flaws, he understood that, you know, here's a really young man, um, probably devastated that he's getting traded from the team, uh, probably feels betrayed. And he's essentially saying like, you know, you did great for us and we really appreciated what you did here. And now you're going to be able to take the next step in your career because we're giving this to you. So it's more of a, you know, not just the transaction, but that that transaction is a relationship and also you know, me and you are people and we we have this relationship too. And I'm not trying to portray that. Hmm. A really masterful breakup. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Perfected it. Yeah, no, that's good. So we'll explore some of these themes in future episodes. Uh, I think we've got some exciting stuff on the horizon. We're talking about doing some guest interviews and bringing some other perspectives into these questions and, and conversations. So, Finally. Uh, stay yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're tired of hearing those two guys talk. Uh, so stay tuned.